Well, uh, let's take a moment and briefly recap where we're at in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we are starting chapter 3 this morning. The last several sermons have focused on a section of Paul's letter where he is expounding on the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. So far, the Apostle Paul has shown us that the, to the believer, God has given spiritual wisdom. Wisdom that is in every way superior to the earthly wisdom that a person relies on before they become alive in Christ. Along with that wisdom, God has afforded believers a spiritual discernment whereby they can identify the difference between what is true and false, what is right from what is wrong. And then last week we spoke about how that discernment logically progresses into a spiritual judgment that every Christian practices, not only a knowledge of what is right and wrong, but a love for what is good, an ability to, to value and to hold dear that which God holds dear to his own heart. And last week, um, or rather in this week, we're going to conclude this section by looking at how spiritual wisdom, spiritual discernment, and spiritual judgment, when we live by them daily in reliance on the Spirit himself, has opened the door to each of those precious resources will bring about a spiritual maturity in each of us, the fruit of which is an ever-increasing love and appreciation for and dependence upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and if you've got your Bibles open there, I'm going to be reading the first four verses of chapter 3 this morning. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready to eat it. And every, even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Can we take one more minute and pray just that God would open our eyes to the scripture that he's given to us today. God, you teach us that a loving father does not withhold from his child anything that that child needs, but he provides for him generously. And we know that you do that to us through the word. And so as you have given us the scripture to guide us and to direct our steps, I pray, Lord God, that we would walk after the light that it casts. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to desire your shaping and your molding influence in our lives. Let us be as soft clay in the hands of of the artist and the sculptor. I pray, Father, that you would shape us to be more like Christ. And we lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have noticed in this section that we're titling today Spiritual Maturity that the word mature does not technically show up anywhere in the lines that we read. And that is because the term was introduced briefly in chapter 2, verse 6 but was not explicitly dealt with by the Apostle Paul until here in chapter 3. In fact, I think with, with the, de uh, the separations of chapters, sometimes you're going to find that subject matter really belongs in a different chapter than what we've designated for. I think this is one of those unfortunate examples where this, these four verses really belonged with what we read at the end there of chapter 2. Now, um, let me read to you that section in chapter 2 that began this idea of maturity so that we can get a feel for how these two sections coincide and how together they give us light about the, the mature uh, stature of a Christian. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 7, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. 
although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The word there in the Greek for mature is teleos, teleos, which means a number of things. It can mean complete in all of its parts, not lacking anything, not missing anything. It could mean full-grown or of full age. Or it can simply mean perfect. Now, not exactly perfect in the way that God is perfect, who is perfect in every way, shape, or form, but living up to the limits of its design and its station. And so on with that understanding, we can see that when Paul addresses the Corinthians here as infants in Christ in chapter 3, he's really dealing with an issue that concerns their spiritual maturity. There's something important that Paul wants to give to them, and he should be able to give it to them. But an immaturity in the people at Corinth is getting in the way. Paul uses the past tense verb here in verse 1 because he's actually taken a second to look back at the spiritual background, the beginning of this church. They used to be lost, now they are found, and he is writing to them after a time away from them. But remember that the church was started shortly after Paul approached the town of Corinth following his ministry in Athens. He entered Corinth originally by himself, but the Lord quickly connected him with two other believers who just so happened to have been kicked out of Rome because of their status as Christians. They came and tried to find a new place to live, and Corinth is where they settled, and, and God just happened to make these two paths cross. Achilla and Priscilla were also tent makers by trade, as the Apostle Paul was. So they began to diligently work at their trade during the days, and in the evenings when work had subsided, they went into the marketplace and they preached the gospel. They actually started not in the marketplace, but in the synagogue. You might recall that they tried to reach the Jews with the gospel, which was Paul's normal practice. Wherever he would go, he would try to seek to connect with those who had a background in the Old Covenant. But in this particular place in Corinth, there are very few Jews who are receptive to hearing about the gospel. And so it didn't take long for Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla to begin to turn their attention to the Gentiles. Shortly after that, we see that Silas and Timothy joined the mission from Macedonia, and before you know it, a church begins to form. Now, now at the time of their conversion, these largely Gentile believers were so new to the faith that Paul and the other apostles who were working to strengthen them, to edify and train them, did not dive into some of the more complicated realities of their faith because the Corinthians were not yet ready for it. Some things take time, don't they? Now, I know that in our culture, traditionally, if you're going to make a cake, you're probably doing it for a special occasion. You usually do it ahead of time. But sometimes you just want cake, right? I don't know if you've ever done what I've done in the past where you wanted cake so badly that you didn't want to take the time to wait for that cake to cool before you put the icing on the cake. How many of you have made that fatal mistake? Some things take time. If you pull that cake out of the oven and then immediately start trying to slather the, the delicious frosting on top, that frosting will begin to immediately melt and will just drain right off the sides of the cake, making it a complete and utter mess. A delicious mess, but a mess nonetheless. That cake is not what it could be, but you still eat it, if you're me. You still enjoy the cake, right? Now, with a young believer, giving the complex things before the fundamentals have sunk in is kind of like frosting the cake before it is cooled. 
that knowledge will often just run off the sides. It won't really stick in, or at least not to the degree that you hoped it would. The believer is still saved. And it still has everything that a Christian needs, just like that messy cake is still technically a cake, and it still tastes like cake, but the Christian is not going to mature as quickly as you want if you try to rush things. In time, that believer begins to have the capacity to become even more mature in the Spirit. So Paul knew what it would, that it would be far more beneficial for the Corinthians if he focused their learning here at the beginning on the, gospels, uh, on the gospel and on the life of Christ. And that was probably about four years ago as Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians. And so by this time, after four years of consistently walking in that truth that was established for them, the Corinthians should have come far along enough in their faith and in their maturity that more complicated and intricate things of God should not be easier for them to grasp. More of the mystery should make sense to them. They should be enjoying the depths of the Father. They should be relying all the more on Christ's atoning work. They should be regularly bearing harvests of spiritual fruit as His church. But instead of maturing, instead of growing in knowledge and practice, these Corinthians have proved that their growth has been stunted. And so Paul says in this letter that he could not address them as spiritual people. Now, what are spiritual people? We talked about that last week. They're not people who do things that seem spiritual on the outside. It's not the hippies of the culture. It's not those who are trying to open their minds through psychedelic drugs. It's not those who practice chanting or emptying of the self or Eastern meditation. The spiritual people are literally those who have been given the seal and promise of salvation, who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Why couldn't he address these brothers and sisters in Christ as though they were spiritual? Because they were not ready. In fact, they were acting as though they didn't even have the Spirit in some regards. So Paul addresses them in two ways here. He calls them people of the flesh, and he calls them infants in Christ. They were not people of the flesh, by the way, but he says that they are acting as people of the flesh. The people of the flesh know nothing of the things of the Spirit. It is a complete mystery to them. They live instead according to the compulsion of the soul, of the human nature. And they often fall into sin and error as their hearts lead them away from the holy things of God. So Paul doesn't want them to make this mistake. He doesn't want the Corinthians to mistake his word as declaration that they are not saved. And so he follows up that harsh title, people of the flesh, with a second title, Infants in Christ. Now, an infant in Christ has a distinct advantage over people who live in the flesh. An infant in Christ, though vulnerable and needy, though unable to do much for himself, is nevertheless in Christ. And so an infant in Christ has the Holy Spirit. Since their conversion four years ago, they have had everything pertaining to life and godliness handed to them by God. But they are doing very little with it. And so they still need to have that gift nourished and put into practice with the help of good shepherding. Now I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. So if you're looking at your Bible, you've got about so many pages left, cut that in half, go to the right, you'll probably land right there in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews gives us a very helpful partial definition of maturity. And it's making a very similar point to Paul's as he begins this passage. He tells the Hebrew brothers that he is writing to in that letter, but solid food is for the mature. 
Here's this topic again, this idea. And then he defines what mature means. He says, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let me read that one more time. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That is maturity, or at least most of what maturity means. This tells us a number of things. Let me point out three things in this Hebrews verse that, that are helpful to us as we try to understand what Paul is saying in, in 1 Corinthians 3. First of all, we see that believers have what they need, right? They have been given the Holy Spirit, and along with that indwelling presence of God comes the powers of discernment. A spiritual person is one who has given his life to Christ and has the Spirit of God. They now have the greatest tool they need to understand all that is before them. Second thing that we see here in Hebrews is that those powers that have been given to them by the Holy Spirit are in need of training. They're in need of training. Those, those tools come to us in raw form. There's nothing wrong with the tool, but there's a lack of knowledge on our part on how to use the tool. So we must be trained in how to walk in the things of Christ. The Holy Spirit is our primary trainer, but God chooses to use other people in our lives, as we're going to see in just a moment, to help in that training process. And the third thing we see here is that the powers of discernment, not only are they trained, but they are put into constant practice. You can receive all the training in the world, but if you're not practicing what you've learned, then it won't do you any practical good. And that is how a Christian grows in spiritual maturity. God opens your eyes along with new life. He gives you spiritual wisdom, discernment, and judgment, as we've been talking about the last three weeks. He gives you a love for the truth that materializes, that shows itself in active practice of the truth. So spiritual maturity comes when we are trained to walk in the Spirit and we practice that by faith and by obedience to His Scripture. So let's take a moment to think more about the training aspect of maturity. And so uh, now flip to the left to Ephesians chapter 4. I don't have any spiffy trick to get you there. Uh, the more we spend time in God's Word, the more we become familiar with the layout of the Scripture. Just like if you're going to a new place, you're probably relying on your Google Maps. But once you've gotten there, usually you can find your way home pretty easily. Not all of you, but some of you can usually find your way home because you've driven around home so much that you're very familiar to uh, the, the freeways and the streets that are, are close to your home. Some of you actually accidentally go home on automatic pilot when you're trying to go somewhere else. So the more we're in the Word, the more we find these passages easily. This is Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read verses 11 through 14. And he, the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes this passage here in Ephesians points out four different types of people who God gives to his church to help Christians reach spiritual maturity what he refers to here as 
mature manhood. Literally there, it's that word teleon, which is essentially the same as teleos, which we talked about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it means to complete humanhood. First of all, he gives us the apostles. He gives us those who are sent out by Christ, specifically on mission by his word, who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and can testify to his triumphant raising from the dead. Secondly, he gives us prophets. The prophets are those who wrote and spoke what God spoke to them, primarily in the Old Covenant, but we do see prophets uh, leaking into the New Covenant as well. John was called a prophet. We are also given evangelists, the third category of helpers that God sends so that those who are young in the faith might hear that gospel again and again, that we might be edified by knowing where we came from and what makes us who we are now in Christ. And then there's a fourth category. It might seem like two, but it's really one. In the Greek, it's more clear, but in the English language, we lose some of the specifics here. But shepherds and teachers represent one branch of God's help to us. These are the ones that add wisdom and doctrinal knowledge of the truth and assist us as we apply it to our lives. So let's look at each of these a little more closely. You might have, have read apostles and prophets and thought, well, that's funny. If God has given apostles and prophets to the church, who am I? Where are my guys who get to hear the word of the Lord and come and tell me a, a message from God that I directly need to hear? I don't have a prophet or an apostle directing me. Oh, but you do. And their words are probably sitting in your lap right now as we speak. It is worth noting that the combination of terms apostles and prophets form a formula of kinds that commonly refer to the holy scriptures of God. <clears throat> Through the prophets, men like Moses and Isaiah and Samuel, God has given us his word as a means of equipping us. He has given us a word which is not ever going to pass away, which is not ever going to become insignificant to our times. It remains relevant. It remains powerful. And it is, it is the roadmap to understanding that we need. If we fear the Lord, we will keep his commandments. And his commandments are recorded for us in Scripture. The apostles, like prophets, but living under the new direction of the new covenants in Christ, contributed our four Gospels. They wrote the historical record of Acts, long and short letters of instructions to the churches, personal letters to individuals, mostly men who would fall into the third and fourth category of evangelists and pastor shepherds. And he also gave us an apocalyptic book, pointing us to the next great act in God's steadily unfolding drama of history. The Word of God has been given to us through the apostles and the prophets. And so we see that formula throughout the New Testament. We see it in 2 Peter 3, 2, where Peter urges the churches in Asia Minor that they should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what is he pointing them to? He's pointing them to the written word, to the testimony that has been given by God through these holy men and preserved so that all the church can benefit from it. In both cases, Peter is referencing what the prophets spoke and what they wrote down, what the prophets predicted, what they looked forward to with God's illumination, and commandments, that which the apostles highlighted for us so that the new covenant church would know Christ better and understand how to conduct itself in the pattern of his life. And this formulation is pointing towards the written, inspired word of God, which has been preserved for us. We see it again in Ephesians 2.20. That formula pops up once more. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together goes into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. What the apostles and the prophets wrote is the part that they contribute to our maturity so that we might become this holy temple of God where the Spirit dwells and where God's image is born throughout the world. What the apostles wrote is precious to us. It is a contribution that we cannot overlook. For instance, in every line of Psalm 119, we see praise for the Word of God, the written direction of how we should live our lives and worship Him properly. Verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 24, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. What does a counselor do but help us in our maturity, right? Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Verse 104, through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Our discernment grows as we keep our eyes on the word of God. And verse 130 of Psalm 119, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And don't forget the critical declaration about God's word that we have in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17 where the apostle says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. What is maturity? It is completeness, equipped for every good work. And this tells us very plainly here that the scripture is sufficient for us. We don't need more than it has to give to us. If we simply abide in the word of Christ, if we simply look at the scriptures and study it and take it to heart and trust the Holy Spirit to help us walk in its pattern of living, then we will be equipped. We will be mature in Him. So we no longer need apostles and prophets because the work that they have done has been established for us and preserved in the scriptures. The word is delivered to us. It is delivered to us by these last two categories, by the evangelists and the shepherd teachers. Evangelists who are moved to share the word of God to the lost and to the young. The shepherds who help the people of God live according to the word. The teachers who add to our understanding of Holy Scripture. Each of these helpers assist us in growing closer to the Lord and stronger in our maturity, ready to enjoy more of the mystery of Jesus Christ that has been revealed to us. And the Corinthians have had much of that, haven't they? They have been blessed with the best of shepherds, with the best of teachers, so much so that they've made the mistake of splitting themselves up into camps and saying, I belong to one teacher, I belong to another teacher. They have divided themselves because they've gotten such good training. Notice in your note sheet, I ask you to think personally about whether your spiritual maturity is held back more by a lack of training or a lack of practice. Some people really need training, don't they? Some have been starved of the Word. Or what little of God's Word they have been given has been commandeered for some social cause, been taught by a pastor who didn't keep the focus on Jesus Christ, but instead used the Word of God as a garnish to pretty up the ideas that he wanted to give to his congregation. So some people really need the Word. They need training in it. 
They need to understand what it says. They need to see the path laid out clearly before them. Others have been given the training, but despite the abundant presence of the Word of God in their lives, despite a mind that can reason and eyes opened to grace, they walk like dead men. They walk in ways that are not spiritual at all. That's how the Corinthians' behavior was so contrary to what they had been taught. They had learned so many good things, but they had decided instead to walk in the wrong patterns that they were used to, the patterns that defined them before Jesus Christ came into their lives. Evangelists and shepherds and teachers edify us with the word that was delivered by the prophets and the apostles, but the most well-trained Christian is not going to advance past infancy if they do not put that training into practice, friends. Paul cannot speak to the Corinthians as though he have honed their skills of discernment. Paul cannot progress with them onto more detailed mysteries of God's grandeur because they have not practiced the things they've already been given. And so he says, for you are still of the flesh. Now just to clarify here, Paul, Paul warns the Corinthians that they are behaving in a carnal way. Sarkikoi is the word in the Greek meaning that they are behaving in a way that is more befitting to someone who cares only about their flesh and not about spiritual things. Again, this is not an argument for that carnal Christian idea that we went over four weeks ago. Remember that previous sermon where we spoke about how some people believe there's a category called the carnal Christian who gets the salvation component of believing in Jesus Christ and going to heaven, but in no way transforms to be like Christ. There can be no such thing as a carnal Christian, friends, because it would mean that practicing sinners are able to trick God into giving them redemption even though they don't have any intention of walking in the light. And that does not happen. God is more competent than that. The Lord will not be deceived. And so those who say, Lord, Lord, but live for self, self, when they get to the final day of judgment, they're going to be disappointed in their relationship with God because it's going to be a relationship of contention, not a relationship of belonging. God knows the difference whether or not we are confused by it. But part of the reason why the idea of the carnal Christian is quite popular in the church today is the fact that some true regenerate Christians do go through periods of time when they're not growing like they should or they're not acting in step with the degree that God has grown them. Every believer, no matter how mature, has to contend with their flesh. And I use that word contend very intentionally. The carnal Christian doesn't walk with the Lord and does not exhibit real repentance. There is no real contention with sin because they're not really saved. There's no wrestling with failure because the Spirit is not there to remind them that their evil deeds are detestable to God. It should be detestable to them. There's no sincere regret felt, uh, felt when they fall short. But the believer, even though he may sin and exhibit immaturity at times, cannot remain comfortable with that. The Holy Spirit is at work sanctifying faithfully. The Holy Spirit is urging them on to growth. And that is how the Corinthians are struggling they are not carnal Christians in the modern understanding of the word. They truly believe, and Paul calls them brothers. But they've exhibited a worldliness that must be corrected. And it is Paul's prayer that their love for Christ will make them open to that correction. Friends, to be born of water is different than being born of spirit. You remember when 
Jesus talks like that in those terms to uh, Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. We must be born of flesh. We, we come out of our mother and we come into a world and we're born with essentially a blank slate, aren't we? We have no idea of what the world is about. Every bit of data we take in begins to form a foundation of our understanding. When we're born of the body, we, we have nothing before that to refer to. But when you're born of the spirit, you don't get a blank slate mentally. You start with a mental record of everything you lived when you were lost, when you were slaves to sin, when you were in the flesh. And so now you've got a new identity, but it is covering up your old identity that still dwells and lingers in you. And so there's a, a tendency there for a man to become confused at times and to live the way that he used to live, even though God has granted him a new identity in Christ. Paul is driving at the main theme of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Those who are in Christ should no longer live as those who are not in Christ. When you are saved, you are saved to transformation. Your identity cannot remain what it was. Now, it, it, let me give you a little illustration of this. My brother moved to Arkansas several years ago, and it took him all about three or four weeks to start to pick up the southern drawl. His vocabulary suddenly got a, a, a little bigger. And uh, suddenly, we weren't us. We were y'all. And we didn't go over there. We went over yonder. There was a lot of words that my brother used that I wasn't used to hearing in him, right? And uh, it's funny because sometimes when he'll come out to visit in Arcan uh, from Arkansas to California, the new culture that he's a part of now, that he talks like every day, it'll start to fade away and he'll begin to pick up more Californian accent. He'll begin to talk like a Californian again because he remembers it, because it lingers. And sadly, sin is like that in us. That sometimes we've moved on from sin. We are a new creation in Christ. He has given us the power and the tools to overcome what used to enslave us. But the memory of it is still there. And especially if we are around environments where that sin is being celebrated and others that we know are participating in it, it can be easy to sort of slip back into that old dialect and to speak like a sinner and to walk like a sinner and to think and to love like a sinner when in reality that's not who we are anymore. And that is what Paul is driving at here in the letter of 1 Corinthians. He is driving for the holiness of God's church to be preserved, that these men and women in Corinth would not behave in the patterns of their Gentile worldliness that they're so used to from before, but they will understand that they are new in Christ, that they have a new identity, and the old activity does not match the new identity in the least. They should be living mature, but they are living like children. Verses 3 and 4 offer the Corinthians evidence of this problem. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulos, are you not being merely human? He points back to that division that we looked at in chapter 1. The fact that these, these believers were not so unified by the Spirit that they saw all as equals, but instead they were breaking into camps and looking down on other camps because they liked their own individual leader better. They liked their earthly example better than their spiritual example of Christ. This cannot be, urges Paul. And I, I'm really hit in the heart by, by this phrase that he uses here. Are you not being merely human? 
Realize what that means, Christian. You were merely human before. Everyone has been that way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if Christ dwells in your life, you are not just a human anymore. You are not just who you were before. You're not just the name on your license. You are bearing the Holy Spirit of Christ. And there's a supernatural power that is in you now. There is a direction that supersedes in all ways whatever plan you had for your life before Christ came in and said, I'm really the king. Let me lead you in love and truth. You're not able to handle management of yourself. Trust me. Here is my word. Walk in its direction. Here are people to help you be accountable. Here are teachers that will show you the truth. Here is a church that will love you and that you can love back. Be who I have made you to be. Are we content to be saved but to remain as essentially fallen humans? What a tragedy that would be. Hasn't Jesus Christ suffered and bled to rid us of that old man, the old self that used to define us? It comes a point where the Holy Spirit that dwells within our hearts firmly grieves us about forgetting who we are in Christ and it urges us to avoid that no man's land, that middle ground where we're trying to have the salvation of Christ but also the liberty to live like the world lives and to follow after the urges of our heart which we know are so often wicked and do not match the good teachings of our Lord God. Don't be like Laodicea, this lukewarm church that thought they could claim Christ but live like the world. There are two ways defined by our Savior Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a broad way, and it leads to destruction. And there is, conversely, a narrow way. And that narrow way, the gate of which is Jesus Christ, is the only way that leads to salvation. There isn't a third path, friends. There is no middle ground. We must walk in what we have been saved in. We must walk in Christ. If you are content to remain immature, there are joys that you are not experiencing right now because you have accepted lesser joys. You've accepted the temptations of worldly living, which is so much more futile than the great things that God has to offer us in His Son. There's a depth of love that you are forfeiting. If you neglect the things that you have been trained in and if you fail to walk forward into an ever-increasing appreciation for your God, that will come out in the way that you practice this truth. Your church, friends, I hope you see this, has a responsibility to urge you on in that growth. And that is why we talked about judgment last week. That we need to be around others who know what we know and can point to us and say, Brother, I can see you're not walking the way that you're supposed to walk right now. Let me help you in that. And when I stumble... I'm going to count on you to be there for me. The church has a responsibility to help you in your growth. This church would be failing you if it never pressed beyond the moral principle of a text of Scripture and never insisted that you apply it in your own life by faith. We can't just come to be intellectual sponges. We must learn so that we can live. And our church should be urging us on to that, that strong service to the Lord, to that faithful walking after Christ. The church would be failing you if it neglected to press against your sin when it does prop back up in your life and urge you to repent of it. Later on tonight in our, our members meeting, I hope you'll join us for that. We're going to have to talk about some people in our body right now who are really struggling with skin. Say we've got to love them. We've got to love them by urging them to repent and to turn back to Jesus Christ.
This church would be failing you if it were not encouraging you to serve and to remain a fruitful part of the vine that is supplied by the life of Jesus Christ. This church would fail from the very beginning and would be useless as a congregation if the Word of God were not the structure by which we are taught these things and trained in Christ so that we can walk in the ways that He has given. Now next week we're going to continue on in a different direction with 1 Corinthians. Paul is going to begin to describe the church and how important it is to the maturity of a believer by giving us two metaphors. He's going to give us the church as a field and he's going to give us the church as a building. So I pray that through this time, as we prepare our hearts now for communions, we begin to transition our, our attention to the table of the Lord, that we would revel in the things that God shares with us through His Word, that we would not push back against it, but that we would embrace it, full heartedly thankful for what God has made us to be in Christ Jesus.